We're in 1 Corinthians today, chapter 9. Jim has read that text for us, but we'll go back and be looking at that today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Many of the songs that were sung today go right along with the message. And so I hope those prepared your heart for what the Word of God has to teach us. It was Martin Luther who, uh, who commented, A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And that tension has been true throughout the history of, of God's people. This struggle between the freedoms we have in Christ and the duties that we have in Christ to him and to others. The good news, uh, what we call the gospel, is, uh, and the gospel that we embrace, the gospel that we proclaim, is that Jesus Christ has come to set us free. He's come to deliver us, to rescue us. He sets us free from sin, which uh, enslaves us. He sets us free from the devil, who, who hates us and causes us to fear and wants to destroy us. He's delivered us from hell, which wants to uh, eternally destroy us. It, it frees us from self, which wants to control us. It frees, he frees us from the law, which wants to dominate us. On the other hand, we belong now to Christ, and we are free in Him. As a result of that, we belong to one who loves us. We belong to one who not only is our Savior, but our Lord. We belong to one who guides us and shepherds us throughout this life, and we belong to one who awaits us in heaven where we will be with him in perfect fellowship forever and ever. It is no wonder that a message like that was on the heart of the Apostle Paul as he uh, teaches this passage of Scripture here. Uh, he mentions the gospel in this uh, chapter uh, uh, nine times. We don't start to about verse 14, I believe, but nine different, or 12, nine different times he mentions the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to deliver us from all these bondages and set us free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of the importance of the gospel. Everything we do is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because of that importance, because of the gospel, that he refused to do anything that might hinder the spread of that gospel or the reception of that gospel, or the growth of the believers who have received the gospel. And that was on his heart at every step of the way, at everything that he did. And so when we come to the end of chapter 8, as we did last week, and we have this final principle that encapsulated everything, he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. There's an eternal principle that the Lord has laid out for us, that he would never do anything that would cause his brother or sister to stumble. If that requires him never to eat certain kinds of meat ever again, if that requires whatever, he says, I will do it for the cause of Christ. And that leads us straight in to chapter 9 that we're looking at today. Bouncing off that principle, he says that because of his love for Christ, his love for the gospel, his love for, for those that know Jesus Christ, his love for those that have yet to receive Christ, because of those things, he will lay down his rights, he will lay down his freedoms, he'll lay down his liberties if it causes anyone to stumble over those things. The spiritual well-being of others is what is paramount in his heart, not his own personal rights or things that he wants to do. Now that's a good sentiment, but as you might know, it's totally out of step 
with everything in our culture today. For many, many decades now, people have been demanding their rights. And we're at the apex of that right now as people are willing to do almost anything to get what they think they need or want. If it, if it, if it takes a rioting in the streets, if it takes running over top of people, if it takes harm to, to anyone else, who cares as long as I get my freedoms, as long as I get my rights. And that's often true, maybe not to the same degree, but that is often true in the church. It was Karl Marx, who was certainly no Christian, as the uh, founder basically of, of co- communism, he said this, the Christian world is only a reflection of the real world. And sad to say, sometimes that's true that the Christian world is just a few steps behind the, the secular world. We're dressing up the things that the world now has today. We dress them up five years later and call them part of Christianity. We have to be very careful with that. And so we're, we're dressing up this rights movement often and saying, well, I have rights to do certain things when the scriptures say something very different about that. And that is what the Apostle Paul is trying to talk about here. He wants to live a life in such a way that the gospel is spread and that people who are Christians' lives are built up. That's at the heart of everything he does, and that's where he's at right here. In chapter 8, we looked at this issue that was dividing the church concerning a conflict over eating meat sacrificed to idols. And that's, uh, that's where he comes at in verse 13 and lays down that principle. I won't eat that meat if it causes another person to stumble. He's going to come back to this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols in chapter 10 and give some further instructions uh, as we look at that. But for chapter 9, he goes off course a bit. He's still covering the same issue of his rights and his freedoms in Christ. But he's going a different direction in chapter 9, and he's going to be talking now about his financial situation and the support of his ministry by the Corinthians. And so we want to look at that today. As we do so, we want to find that as an apostle, he had his livelihood from the gospel, and now he's headed in a direction of facing two different tensions. There's two different tensions he wants to deal with. You deal with this too. On the one hand, He has the right to do as he pleases since Christ has set him free from so many things. On the other hand, he is willing to lay aside many of those rights in order that the cause of Christ and the good of believers might be advanced. So let's look at these tensions and see what the word of God has to say about them. We'll start with Paul's rights. In verses 1 and 2 he says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is going to talk about his rights. Uh, We'll find in this passage of Scripture six different times he talks about rights. In verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 12 twice, and then in verse 18. The Greek word here, exousia, is a word that could be translated authority. And some translations will translate it authority. But I think right is a better word. It fits better with our thinking. And he is saying here, look, I have certain rights and because of who I am as an apostle. And this church was challenging those rights. This church was challenging the apostles' authority. Uh, and that was true in many of the churches where Paul went. But especially at Corinth, in both epistles to the Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the fact that they are challenging his authority. 
And there is a sense in what some of them were actually saying. Paul, I think you're a fake. I don't, I, we don't think you're an apostle at all. What right do you have to, to tell us what to do? What right do you have to give us even the inspired word of God? Are you really an apostle? And so Paul had to lay out the fact that he was an apostle so that it, and that he would continue to be an apostle and he would continue to have authority over these people. So let's take a look at, at that. First of all, a couple of things that he, that he did. First of all, let's look at his apostleship and then we'll look at, at it for whom he laid down some of his rights. Let's start with this apostleship. And at first that might not seem important to you, but I assure you it is. He says, I am an apostle three times in verses 1 and 2. He speaks of his apostleship. So he's defending his apostleship. Was he a fake? Was he an imposter? Or was he the real one? The word apostle, and this is important for you to understand as you read the New Testament scriptures, the word apostle uh, has more than one connotation. More than one, there's only one meaning, but it can mean different things. For example, the word apostle itself just means a sent one. Someone sent out by the church or sent out by God. And so in that sense, there are many apostles. And we find in the New Testament, for example, different ones such as Barnabas, who is called an apostle. Someone sent out for the ministry of the Lord. And so that is where that, how that word can often be used, just someone sent out. In a few weeks, we're going to send out as a church the Tuckers to... Uh, now, the church at Corinth wasn't doing that very well. And that was a big problem because they believed others could rival the Apostle Paul and his authority. And so Paul speaks of his... As we go back to our passage, Paul speaks of his apostleship. But now he says, I lay down some of those rights as apostleship. That's what he's going to talk about as he moves forward. Before we look at those rights, I just want to mention this. Uh, Paul did not lay down all of his rights. There was a movement back in the 60s and 70s, it's still kind of around today, that taught that you're supposed to lay down all of your rights. Well, the scriptures don't teach that. The apostle Paul did not lay down his right of authority. He did not lay down his right to be an apostle. How do we know that? Go to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. As Paul writes to this church, chapter 4, verses 18 to 21, he is say, he, this church is rebelling against him. Here's what he says. Now some have become arrogant, as though I was, I was not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out from the, not the words of those who are arrogant with their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He is saying, look, I have authority over you as an apostle and I will exercise that authority. He does not lay that right down. And so we have to be careful when we're talking about this subject. What rights does Paul lay down? What rights does he not claim? So let's go back to our text and notice several of the ones that he says, I'm willing to lay these down for the cause of the gospel. I'm not willing to lay down the authority of my apostleship. That's needed. But I will lay down certain rights. Let's look at several of them. First of all, food. Verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Well, he's going to lay that down. He talked about that in chapter 8. Of course, he's not talking about general food. His ministry would be very short-lived if he did that. Uh, but he's talking about this meat sacrificed to idols 
He's willing to not eat that meat. Uh, he's willing to, to lay that aside for the cause of Christ so that no one stumbles over him. Secondly, there is marriage. Verse 5. Do we not have a right to take a, along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? All the other apostles and key leaders of the New Testament church had wives. Uh, they all had wives. When they traveled, they took their wives with them at times, except for Paul and Barnabas, which shows us here that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas were still friends. Sometimes you, get a, you might mistake chapter 15 when they divided, went two different directions. They weren't at war with each other, folks. They just couldn't work together with strategy. And so they went two different directions. But they're friends here uh, many years later. And Paul says, do we not have the right to take along with us a believing wife? And so we find here in Scripture, look, uh, marriage is normal for the Christian leader. Celibacy is not taught in Scripture uh, as a mark of a minister of the Lord. You see, how, you see how we can go astray with that. The Old Testament priests and Levites were married. Uh, the New Testament apostles and leaders were married. Paul simply laid aside that right, as he told us in chapter 7, because the Lord gifted him with celibacy and singleness, and uh, he was better serving the Lord as a single man. And if you think about Paul's life, you understand that. Uh, Paul uh, was constantly traveling, constantly on ships and being shipwrecked and all that, in jail a lot of times. Having a wife would have been tough. Been tough on him, been tough on his family, been tough on everyone. And so he chose not to be married for the cause of the gospel. He laid aside that right. And he had the right to lay it aside. And then thirdly, and this is what the bulk of the teaching is here, and this is the rest of our section, he laid aside his right for financial support from these people. He laid aside the right of financial support. He had a very tight argument here going forward. There's actually four pieces to his argument. So those of you that like that kind of argument, if you're mathematical at all, you'll like this. If you're not, you're going to be bothered, I suppose. But let's look at the logic. We'll start with logic. Verse 6, here's his first piece of argument. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and not, does not use the milk of the flock? So does, everywhere Paul and Barnabas went in the early days when they were together, everywhere they went, uh, they supported themselves. Paul made tents, Barnabas got a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, as I understand it, that's the largest franchise in the world, and he probably had them then already, I suppose. Yeah, I'm just kidding about that. I'm, I've always been amazed, though, to go to foreign countries that has a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I ask the people, what is a Kentucky? They're not real sure about that, but, but they do like the chicken. So um, at any rate, Barnabas would get a job somewhere. They took care of themselves. Do, do only Barnabas and I have the, not have the right to be free from working, he says. And you have to remember that at this time, the upper crust Greeks and Romans thought manual labor was demeaning. Uh, and if you, if you read the uh, 19th century uh, English novels, or you watch PBS on all the Queen shows, or, or, you, or you've watched Downton Abbey, you, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the aristocrats, 
They didn't work. To actually go out and work with your hands was considered demeaning. They didn't, they didn't do that. And that's exactly how uh, the rich people of this age thought. You don't work with your hands. Uh, you're above that. And so for Paul to actually work with his hands, take care of his own needs, would have been a great challenge for them, and, and uh, they would probably not even appreciate it. They'd probably look down on that. But Paul uses this little illustration here about this. He, said, he talks about a soldier. What soldier serves at his own expense? What soldier quits the battle to go work at his part-time job somewhere? None, right? And then he says, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? What, what farmer plants grapes but never eats them, never harvests them? And who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Do, do, do these farmers, these shepherds, they just like the smell of sheep? No, they, they want to have the product, the produce that comes from the sheep. That's just normal thinking. That's logical. And so Paul goes on to, to say then that that that's simply should be the same thing for those that serve Jesus Christ. The minister of the gospel is much like these three illustrations. No, they're like a soldier who contends with the world. Uh, they are like a farmer who plants and nurtures the church. They're like a shepherd who pastors a flock under their care. And so it's very important that they have the time to do that. Over the years, I've known many bivocational pastors. By that, I mean a pastor who works probably at a full-time job and pastors a church. There's lots of those out there, and almost everyone I've ever met, I respect highly. I appreciate. These are men of God who love the Lord and love his people and love the word, and, and I very much respect them. But in almost every case I've ever seen, those churches never go forward because the pastor of that church doesn't have the time to spend in the study of the word. He doesn't have the time to shepherd the people. He has to work for make a living. So Paul is saying here, look, I have the right not to work at a secular job, but I've laid down that right in your case because it's causing a hindrance at the church there, or I fear that it would. The second part of his argument has to do with the scriptures. Look at verse 8. Am, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Now he's going to turn to the Old Testament. And he says, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, it was found in the Old Testament scriptures. The law said that very thing. Look at what the law said, drawing from the book of Deuteronomy. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So he goes back to the Old Testament. God placed in the law that, the, that the, even the animals should eat of their work efforts, that they should be able to, to eat and reap from their efforts. But Paul is saying, look, God is not just concerned about animals. He is concerned about us, and he makes that application. Then in verse 11, he says this, if we sowed spiritual things to you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? There's his principle. We have, so, we have given you, we've sold out the truth of God's word. We've given you the spiritual truth. Is it too much to ask that you give us financial support in these things? This is not to say now, he's not talking about a perfect minister 
but he is talking about those who would serve Christ in the local churches, serve Christ as missionaries, and the right that they have to be supported in that way. But they're not perfect. Somebody says, well, I'm not going to support so-and-so. He's, he's not a very good preacher. I'm not going to support so-and-so. He, he, he has these flaws. Well, if you're going to do that, you're not going to support anybody, are you? John Newton, who is known for amazing grace, but he's also known to be a godly man, and a great pastor, said this once. He said, in my imagination, I sometimes fancy that I could make a perfect minister. I take the elegance of this one and the knowledge of that one and the zeal of yet another and the pastoral meekness and tenderness and piety of a fourth that put them all together into one man. I say to myself, this would be the perfect minister. Now, there is one who, if he chose it, could do all this, but he never did. He has seen fit to do otherwise and to divide these gifts to every man severally as he will. In other words, there is one perfect minister, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he had chosen to do so, he could do all the ministry, couldn't he? He wouldn't need us at all. And yet he has chosen to work through the instruments of you and I to work his, his will and to spread his gospel. Paul says, I'm one of those that are doing that, and I have the right to be receiving your support. In verse 12, he moves on to talk about the Lord's direction. Now, uh, maybe in 11 and 12, let's look at the, at the observation. Let's call it the observation. So a third piece of his argument. If we sold spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we'll cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? He's still building his argument. He says, look across town. Look at the pagan temples. You have all these priests at the pagan temples and they're making a living on the food and gifts brought in to those pagan temples. In the Old Testament, the priests and Levites were supported by the people. They ate many of the sacrifices. That is the observation he makes here. And so that's his third argument. And then he caps it off with a fourth and final and his best argument, and that is the word of God, of Jesus Christ himself. What, what was the Lord's point? What did the Lord say? Verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. He's going back to Luke 10, 7 and Matthew 10, 10. And the Lord himself said, those who do the work of the gospel are to receive their living from that work. And so Jesus himself commends it. But we're not quite done. I want you to go over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. What about the rest of the New Testament revelation, the, the, uh, the, the epistles, Revelation 6, 6? Let's read a couple of verses here. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Forever a man sows, this who will also reap. Now let's start with verse 7 for a moment. I think it's interesting how often we quote verse 7 in various cases of life, various situations. And it's a general teaching. You reap what you sow. But the context is stinginess 
with those who serve them in the church. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches it. That is, if we're not supporting those who are sent out by the church and those who are ministering to the church, then we're going to reap that which we've sown in our stinginess. Interesting, isn't it, in that context. Then go over to, to, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. One more verse of scripture. Here he's talking about elders. And he talks about elders a lot in 1 Timothy. He gives qualifications and so forth in chapter 3. But here he comes back to him in verse 17. And he says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Same verses he used before. Although the labor is worthy of his wages, actually a quote from Jesus. And so he's saying in the rest of the New Testament scriptures, the same thing. So look, at, so look at the evidence. Let's put it all together. As we do so, going back to our passage, we put it all together. The Old Testament taught this. The New Testament teaches this. Jesus teaches this. Observation teaches this. Logic teaches this. That those who minister for the Lord should receive their sustenance or financial wherewithal from the people of God they minister to. And so that is his argument all the way through here at this point. Now let me, let me just apply that a little bit before we finish it off. Uh, this teaching, which I believe is crystal clear, has been historically ignored by many, many people who are Christians. For many generations, many centuries, the idea was that we'll keep the pastors poor and humble and we'll let them serve Christ. They should never be on the same standard as the rest of the people. They should always be struggling. After all, shouldn't they trust God? No. Why should they plan for a house? Why should they plan for retirement? Why should they do this? Don't they trust God? And the answer to that is, don't you trust God? Are only ministers and missionaries supposed to trust God? Is it only those who are in, in full-time ministry that, that are, have that requirement? Or do every Christian, are we all supposed to live in the trust of God? So when somebody said, and I've heard them say this out loud, that you don't need a retirement plan, the Lord will take care of you in retirement, then I guess the best turnaround is, why don't, why don't you do the same thing? Don't you trust God? I think it's a... a, a rejection of the clear teaching of scripture if we do not do what God tells us to do in this section of scripture. And so it's very clear what Paul is saying here throughout this passage of scripture. But having said all of that, that is not his main point. Verse 12. Go back to verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Don't we have this right? Yes, we do. I have that right to be supported by you and to be supported in a way that is, that is reasonable. By the way, you know, pastors and missionaries, they have uh, kids to put through college too. Their kids, their kids aren't all born with straight teeth, you know. <laughs> they, have their, they have their issues. They have their future. I know many pastors who wanted to stay in the ministry until they died, but the Lord didn't see fit. They got sick. And they had to be taken care of. They have the same financial needs that everybody else does, and Paul says, look here, I, I have the right, I have the right to be supported by you. But now let's go on. Nevertheless, 
We did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we'll, we'll cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. In this particular situation, this is not universal. Universally, we've already seen what the scripture teaches on this. But Paul says, I have laid aside the right to be supported by this church in order not to be a hindrance for the gospel. That's not a mandate. It's not something very many did. It's not something God calls us to do. But Paul did it because of particular circumstances here. The word hindrance is a word that means to cut up a road like during battle. It'd be like in a, in a war when they, they blow up bridges so people, the army can't get across. That's the word. He says, I'm not going to do anything that's going to blow up the spiritual bridge that hinders someone coming to Christ, that hinders believers from truly growing in Christ. I'll not do anything that sidetracks them or causes them to stumble. And apparently that was an issue that was causing them to stumble there. So here's the, here's the lesson he's teaching us. What are we willing to give up for the cause of Christ? Now that was a broad application, isn't it? Do you see the paramount importance of the gospel, of the, of the proclamation of, of the deliverance of Jesus Christ? Do you see the, the paramount importance of the growth of the body of Christ, believers who need to be walking with him? Do you see in your life things that might hinder that in the unbelieving world or the Christian world? What would you actually be willing to give up in your life for the cause of Christ? That's the big principle. That's the big application that he has here. He's not saying that ministers shouldn't be paid. Matter of fact, he says they should. He is not saying that, that he's giving up these rights like everybody else should do the same. He is simply saying, look at your heart. Look at your life. Are you living in a self-sacrificing way for the Lord Jesus? It used to be very common in the church to talk about sacrificial living to live sacrificially for the cause of Christ, financially, with our time, with our energy. And the question would be, are you doing that? Paul did that. When it comes to money, which is his context, money, folks, reveals your heart about as much as anything does. If you're stingy, then you, you trust in your money rather than trusting God. If you're stingy with other people, then you, are, you have a hard heart towards them. If you are materialistic, then you're investing in this world rather than investing in the next world in Christ's kingdom. Generous people recognize that finances is a tool given to us to honor the Lord, serve others, and advance his cause. And Paul says, I will do everything in my ability to do exactly that, to advance the cause of Christ whatever it might cost me to do so. And so this passage, which is very practical on money, has a great application spiritually, I trust, in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word of God, uh, that you, the word of God that you give us, the truth that you are constantly giving us, Lord, in every aspect of life. You touch every seam of our lives, Lord, in your word, in your truth. And we're so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.